Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top. And in terms of what we offer, it's a suite of industry-leading banking solutions. And I stress on the word suite because banks today want to have the ability to pick and choose. They want to cherry pick what they think is priority for them. They want to have the flexibility of determining the manner in which they pick a solution and the manner in which they deploy it. And of course, all of these need to be available, whether it's on-premise or on the cloud. That was Sanit Rao, the CEO of Emphasis Finical, and he is my special guest on this episode, episode 201 of the Leaders in Payments podcast, and I'm your host, Greg Myers. Not only has he been in the industry for 32 years, he has a driving passion for both digital anthropology and AI ethics. Infosys Finical is an industry leader in the digital banking solution space and a wholly owned subsidiary of the Infosys brand. According to Sanit, they exist to inspire better banking for billions of people and millions of businesses so that they can save, pay, borrow, and invest better. Tune in this week to hear Sanit talk about his journey to the CEO role, where he sees the industry going in the next two to three years, including core banking transformation, emerging markets, seamless integration, and the modernization of legacy technology. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Hi, Sanit. Thank you for being here and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Thanks, Rick. Thanks for having me and I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, me too. So let's go ahead and dive right in. If you don't mind, tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that. Sure. So firstly, I mean, thanks for having me on your podcast. I am a big fan of podcasts in general and I've heard some of yours as well. And I think it's great that you focused on payments. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. My name is Sanat Rao, and I'm speaking to you from the UK, where I'm based. Professionally, Greg, I'm the CEO of Infosys Finical, which is one of the top digital banking solutions globally in both consumer and corporate banking. And I'm sure we'll discuss more about our business later in this conversation. But besides my day job at Infosys Finical, I'm also a qualified digital anthropologist. For those of your listeners who are not familiar with the term, digital anthropology is an uh, emerging social science that studies and understands the meanings of the relationships between human behavior on the one hand and digital technologies on the other. Beyond that, I'm at the moment also studying at one of the leading universities in the world, which is the University of Cambridge here in the UK to become an AI ethicist. You know, and every time a corporation takes steps to democratize AI, given the proliferation of data and data-related technologies in the world today, and where these companies recognize the ethical compulsions behind the deployment of such technologies, that's, in my opinion, a huge step in the right direction. And while all of us get excited about these new technologies, I think the thinking around the ethical dimensions about some of the technologies is probably lacking behind the technology itself. So I'm at the moment very focused on acquiring skills from the University of Cambridge to become an AI ethicist. So that's really me, Greg. Let's dive in and talk about the company Emphasis Finical. So tell the audience what the company does. Sure. So Finical is an industry leader in digital banking solutions. And I think those of your listeners who follow our space will probably be very familiar with our brand name. 
we are a wholly owned subsidiary of one of the world's most respected IT consulting companies, which is Infosys. Infosys is an India headquartered business, but does its business all over the world with the US actually the largest market for uh, Infosys. So we are a wholly owned subsidiary there. While the Infosys parent organization is an IT technology consulting and services organization, we in the subsidiary focus completely on intellectual property and IP-led businesses. So we are a banking platform business and we serve customers who like to leverage software. So that's really what are the core of our businesses. As far as Finical itself is concerned, Greg, our genesis was a core banking solution provider you know, approximately two decades ago. But as you'll be familiar, just as core banking as a technology has evolved over the years, so have we in Finical and our model itself has also undergone a change. Essentially, we provide front-to-back digital solutions and we operate in over 100 countries across the six continents from Australia and New Zealand in the east, all the way to the Americas in the west and many countries in between. Finical is fortunate that it's been deployed by a very large number of institutions across the world, global banks, regional banks, local banks, over 1 billion adult individuals in the world have an account with a bank that uses Finical. So using that metric, we serve roughly 16 to 17% of the world's adult population by virtue of the fact that they probably have an account with a bank that's using Finical. And in terms of our business focus, we are a leader in not just retail core banking, but also in corporate banking, digital banking, and payments. And we are featured as a global leader by the likes of Gartner, Forrester, Silent, and other leading analysts. You asked me what our business is and what our company does. So essentially, if I look at that from a couple of different lenses, if you like, So I think we say that we exist to inspire better banking and we consciously use the word better banking rather than best because we believe that the journey towards better banking is indeed a journey. And particularly now, you know, we're recording this in November of 2022 and hopefully the worst of COVID is behind us. And I think we've all been witness to the way expectations have changed post-COVID, as the world discovered that there's an entirely different way of working. So we exist really to inspire better banking, and our focus is on ensuring that billions of people and millions of businesses can save, pay, borrow, and invest better. Now, how do we do that? That's obviously a legitimate question. So we do that with what we believe are two main strengths, which is the solutions on the one hand and our people on the other. So we help banks to, whether they want to engage with their end users, whether they want to innovate, whether they want to operate or transform better, we enable that through our solutions. And we recognize that between these four pillars, engagement, innovation, operations, and transformation, the priorities may indeed be different for different institutions. So it's not as though we focus on one or the other. We also recognize that the same institution may have differing priorities at different points in time. So there'll be occasions where the focus is really on operating more efficiently and looking at the possible headwinds going into 2023 where the macroeconomic environment is uh, challenging to say the least. A lot of banks are today focusing on getting more efficient in their operations. At the same time, I think banks recognize that if they don't engage with their customers better, if they don't make that relationship more meaningful, then customers will leave and go off to competition. So our focus is, as I said, on each of these four elements, engagement, innovation, operations, and transformation. And of course, as a technology company, all of these four pillars, if you like, are underpinned by strong technology solutions. So this is the way we think we can help banks make 
their customers' financial lives much better. And in terms of what we offer, it's a suite of industry-leading banking solutions. And I stress on the word suite because banks today want to have the ability to pick and choose. They want to cherry pick what they think is priority for them. They want to have the flexibility of determining the manner in which they pick a solution and the manner in which they deploy it. And of course, all of these need to be available, whether it's on-premise or on the cloud. If you look at the business lines, if you like, of what our solutions cater to, so we do core banking, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. We cater to lending, digital engagement, payments. Cash and liquidity management has been a big, big success for us in the last few years. And, you know, we are signing up really big names in the Americas, Europe, and Asia Pacific. We also offer wealth management and treasury solutions. Those are not offered across the globe. But those are offered in certain markets. And of course, given the interest around analytics and AI and the continued emergence of blockchain, we have solutions in these areas as well. So it's pretty much the entire length of the different lines of business, if you like, which are typically found in a bank. It sounds like this is not a uh, a short sales cycle type of product, but do you do a lot of consulting with these banks? Do you help them? Like they may come to you with a problem that you can help fix, but you end up providing a lot of consulting around how to do it, why to do it. Is that part of the sales process? Absolutely. And I think as one of the players which operates across the six continents, I think banks like to speak with us because we are able to bring the length and breadth of experience. And banks today want to learn from the experience of other institutions, whether it's the good experience or indeed even the bad experiences. So absolutely, we are able to make that differentiation through the experience that we ourselves have. Okay. You sort of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I want to kind of double click on it. What do you feel or what do you think differentiates your company from your competitors out there? Uh, (laughs) That's a great question. And as you'll appreciate, there's no one size fits all approach simply because the scenario changes from situation to situation, bank to bank, country to country and region to region. So I don't believe there's a one prescription that's valid across all uh, instances. But if I had to pick a few things which I think are present in all situations, and therefore, generally speaking, they would be applicable in most situations, our secret sauce, so to speak, the recipe for our secret sauce really would probably comprise a few things. First is, as I mentioned earlier in response to your previous question, the sweet itself straddles from being best of breed and best of sweet. And that gives you the benefit of picking and choosing what you want from front to back. There are instances where banks will focus on the front end. There are instances where the banks may focus on back-end solutions, but they want to have the choice to be able to pick and choose out of that suite. The second element that I'd point to is something which is, I think, very relevant in recent times and certainly growing in importance as the technology further matures, which is the ability for banks to deploy a modern cloud-native and microservices-driven architecture-built solutions, right? So I think today banks are very, very cognizant of the fact that the journey to the cloud is no longer a question of, is it required? But one is asking the question saying, how do we get onto the cloud? So from our point of view, as providers of modern technology solutions, it's important that our solutions are cloud-native. We have the right kind of architecture. I refer to microservices there built on obviously proven constructs of layered design and scalability. That, I'd say, is the second element of uh, recipe, if you like. There are a few others. One is, unlike, again, some of our competitors who have different versions of the product, if you like, you know, they have one version for 
a certain part of the world and another version for another part of the world. We bake all of that into a single product globally. Supported, of course, by localized components, which are extensible, but ours is a single product globally. And the reason I stress on that, Greg, is, as I mentioned in context of your earlier question about consulting, when customers today choose us and when they look to deploy our solutions, they're looking to really get the best of practices across different parts of the world, recognizing that banking is maturing and opening up in different ways in different parts of the world. So I think having a single product globally, but Fine-tuning that with localized components allows the bank to get the best of everything. Global best practices, but also supported by localized components, which gives it a local touch and feel. And I would point to just two other elements, which I think, again, are of growing importance to banks. One is composability. And I stress on the word composability because unlike, say, 15, 20 years ago, where banks were happy to take the entire suite, certainly in parts of Asia-Pacific and Middle East Africa. Today, banks want to have the choice of what they will pick and choose, when they want to deploy it, when they'll want to upgrade that particular component. So that whole element about composability has become very important. And Finical is very, very focused on the composability of the suite, such that we give the choice to the banks of not just what they can pick and deploy, but also when they want to upgrade that in the future. And we do this, obviously, through our own teams, We do it through local partners that we've got in different parts of the world. And of course, we've got global players, like I mentioned, the likes of EY, IBM and Accenture, who work with us globally. So all of this comes together. And I'd say these are some of the basic tenets of what I would say is our secret sauce. As I said earlier, there's no one-size-fits-all approach. And none of these five, six points that I mentioned are to be taken as gospel truth. They all need to be sort of adapted to each situation. But it's something that's worked very well for us. And we think that we've industrialized this to the point where when any institution starts talking to us about their requirements, we're able to build on the experience that we've gained in operating over 100 countries to adapt this recipe, if you like, and make it more contextual to their situation. You're probably familiar with the words buy now, pay later, how it has grown exponentially over the past couple of years and is still one of the hottest trends in payments. It's become a norm for retailers to provide a buy now, pay later payment option for their customers, many of whom no longer want to use credit cards for larger purchases. Business leaders are tasked with finding a payment solution that offers a seamless digital customer experience that results in increased sales. Citizens Pay is a buy now, pay later solution created by citizens that helps retailers drive sales and increase loyalty by providing customers with transparent installment financing, longer repayment terms, and a dedicated line of credit for repeat purchases. It's also optimized for merchants looking to offer a payment option to consumers with more mature and sophisticated purchases in mind, like a new living room set, fitness equipment, or a kitchen appliance. With Citizens Pay, merchants have the security of a leading national bank and an omni-channel platform designed to streamline the buying process. If you want to learn more about Citizens Pay, follow the link in our bio or visit citizenspay.com backslash podcast, where you can find additional information about Citizens Pay and the buy now, pay later payment model. This podcast is part of a paid partnership between Citizens Pay and the Leaders in Payments podcast. This next question, so I typically ask it around the payments industry, but I think what's important here is the whole digital banking platform, and I think people understand the importance of it to payments. So 
I'd love for you to talk a little bit about is where you see this banking platform industry going in the next two to three years. Obviously, times have changed just in the last few months, and I'm sure your answer has probably changed in the last few months. But I'm curious, like, where are we headed with this digital banking platform in the next two to three years as an industry? You're absolutely right. You know, the same question nine, 12 months ago would have been a little different and would have been even more different three years ago. So you're absolutely right that, you know, things have changing, they continue to change and they will, you know, there'll be further change as we go along. So let me just, I think, address this in a couple of different ways. One is that it's important to recognize whether you are a bank, whether you're a supplier to a bank or whether you are one of the other stakeholders who's consuming bank services. I think the biggest change that's happened is the change in expectations. Simply because three years ago when COVID hit us, none of us hand on heart, none of us knew that we'd be able to operate the way we did through 2021. So I think that has been a revelation. And if anything, that has, I think, whetted the appetite for change and whetted the appetite for doing things very differently. So I think the biggest change that everyone is grappling with is managing the changing expectations. But more specifically, as far as technology is concerned, given that irrespective of industry, the entire world operated on a model that was completely predicated on technology. We are really excited about a few things. One is that we've seen a huge appetite and a growing appetite amongst banks to embark on some of the most difficult journeys that they've been on. And I refer particularly to core banking transformation, which is arguably the most difficult and the most risky part of the technology transformation than any bank. So we're recognizing that banks today have a lot more openness. The approach may vary from bank to bank and institution to institution, but I think there's a lot, lot more openness today to eventually sort of take that big plunge and say that, you know, some of these changes need to be made. And the reason I stress on that is that if you go back to the way digital banking itself has evolved in the last, say, 10 years, not too long ago, digital banking meant everything at the front end. You know, you had sexy technology at the front end, backed by legacy systems of 30, 40 years at the back end. Now, for you and I as consumers and users of banking products and services, irrespective of whether we bank with a global bank or a regional bank or a local bank, if that bank has modern front-end systems but clunky legacy systems at the back end, the experience is never going to be wholly exciting. The clunkiness of the legacy systems is bound to get exposed at some stage or the other. So I think we are really excited about the fact that large institutions, all local and regional institutions today are taking that plunge towards modernizing their technology infrastructure. I think the other big change that we see happening, and I suspect some of this has been driven by developments outside the traditional banking industry itself, is the emergence of new business models. I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with terminology such as banking as a service, the platform business, marketplace businesses. Now, these are no longer just nomenclatures that reside in presentations and uh, white papers. These are happening today. Admittedly, some of these were championed by players who came into financial services but didn't necessarily have a banking license. So they came from the retail industry or the services industry and they sort of embedded themselves into some element or the other of financial services, including payments, for example. So I think the emergence of some of these new models, and given that your podcast is focused on payments, Greg, some of your previous uh, participants have talked about things like embedded finance. They've talked about the things like the fact that today clients want that seamless experience where the payments and the fulfillment of a transaction is just one element, but the customer wants that to be done in a completely seamless manner. 
So I think some of these newer business models that are coming, whether it's embedded finance, whether it's open banking, whether it's the banking as a service and marketplace, all of these are facilitated by technology. It's not to suggest that every bank will want to do this. And maybe it's not relevant to every bank. But what excites us is that there are enough banks today who are willing to look at some of these initiatives. And certainly we have the solutions and we're already working with some banks in this area. And, you know, this is going to, I think, create an entirely new and an exciting model of banking, if you like, going forward. So let me pause here. I think there are obviously elements of this that we can delve into more detail if required, but hopefully that gives you some idea of what I meant in response to your question. One place I do want to dive a little into since you brought it up is sort of this embedded finance area because we've seen where software companies are now doing a lot more, obviously, in payments. You mentioned marketplaces, and they've taken that model of offering payments and then now they're doing it with other what I'll call financial products, right? Thus embedded finance. So just curious, so do you guys play in that space? I mean, is that something you guys are offering solutions to sort of non-bank companies or are you still just focusing on embedded finance through your banking customers? No, we offer our solutions to non-banking players as well. And at the end of the day, the solutions are flexible and capable of being deployed in a manner that the user so chooses. So we are indeed working with institutions who don't necessarily have a banking license, but who offer banking type of services, whether it's an end-to-end service or whether it is just the fulfillment path through an embedded finance, we offer that. So we are very much in that space. And we think that some of the excitement in the emerging marketplace really comes from that segment of the market. They are newer players, their genesis is outside the banking industry. They were possibly born with a different proposition. And whether you look at some of the examples in South Asia and Southeast Asia, you know, whether it's Grab in Singapore and Indonesia, whether it's Paytm in India, you know, these are all institutions that started off as maybe a digital wallet or a catering to different services, whether it's taxi and cab hailing or marketplace to do shopping and so on. And somewhere along the way, Banking light services also became part of the portfolio. So we, we are very excited about that. And we believe that there'll be more and more such examples as the world opens up. Yeah, I agree with you there for sure. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about you. So tell us about your background and your journey, how you got to be the CEO there at Emphasis Finicle. <laughs> I must confess, I'm what I would call an accidental technologist. So let, let me explain that. As I mentioned, you know, at the start of this conversation, uh, Greg, when I completed my MBA from a leading management school in India, I joined an Australian bank, ANZ. I initially served them in India, and then I was fortunate to work with them on a technology-led project in Australia. And that was a revelation for me because I came with no technical skills or technical background. And therefore, going to Melbourne and working with them on a technology project that was meant to be deployed across the ANZ world in different countries in the Asia-Pacific was a huge eye-opener for me. In 1999, I came back to India for personal reasons. So I left the project and I came back to India. And I left the bank at that time. And really, I went through a short phase where I was unsure what my next step would be. And the reason I say this is that in some ways, technology was only just beginning to show its impact in the banking industry. On the other hand, when I came to Bangalore, which is where my family was, Bangalore had become the hub of shoring and technology investments, whether it's the large Indian tech companies or even the likes of IBM and Capgemini and Accenture and so on were setting up huge 
technology shops in India, and many of them were in Bangalore. So when I joined Infosys in late 1999, it was more as a, candidly speaking, I was not sure what my next step would be. And little did I realize that 23 years later, I'd still be in the tech industry. So that's why I say I'm an accidental technologist. Yeah, I love that description. What are some things that you're passionate about? So maybe one work-related passion and one personal passion. I think it's great that in your question, you split that into work and non-work because when I'm often asked that question, that is exactly the way I respond. I don't like to respond only on the work part or only on the non-work part. Let me address both of these components that you sort of mentioned. I think on the work front, I have to stress that while each of the previous organizations, ANZ Bank and IBM Consulting, of course, were very, very beneficial, as I mentioned in my previous response, let me just focus on Finical. So I came as the CEO of this business in the end of 2016. And the three preceding years, this business had been a little wobbly for a variety of different reasons. So in some ways, my mandate was to stabilize and then turn the business around. In the year 2021, which is the first year of COVID, we recorded our best ever industry, you know, business results in the past 20 years of Finical. And mind you, our model is not based on cost cutting and stuff like that. So when COVID hit the world, considering that when we deploy our software platforms, these are some of the most risky projects that banks embark upon. The fact that we had a proposition that was meaningful to the bank. I think the best testimony of the value that we bring to clients was the fact that we had not a single project that was cancelled because of COVID. Sure, there were projects that got delayed a little bit as banks grappled with this uncertainty around this remarkably changed environment that we were suddenly dealing with. So there were some decisions that were delayed. Some projects did go a little slower than planned. And that was perfectly understandable. Despite that, that first year of COVID, 2021, was the best year in our history. Fast forward to the present year, so roughly three financial years from the time COVID hit, all three years we've had industry-leading double-digit growth. We operate at industry-leading operating margins. So we are an extremely healthy business on a fast growth path. And we are backed by Infosys as a parent organization, which has one of the strongest balance sheets in the business globally. So Infosys is a zero-debt company. Infosys as an organization has grown on the back of its own internal accruals. It's extremely strong balance sheet. We are cash rich. And the reason I stress on all of that is that Finical has been fortunate that as we've gone through this growth path, I've had no challenge at all in terms of getting the investments that I seek to ensure that Finical has been able to grow to greater and greater heights. So I think one element that I'm certainly very passionate about is the journey that I've been able to make Finical go through. And like I said, when I joined in 2016, the preceding three years were very wobbly for its business. We've been able to stabilize and turn that around in the last three years, as I said, double-digit growth, industry-leading growth at industry-leading operating margins. So all of that, of course, creates the platform, even as the market opens up, to do a lot more exciting work going forward. If I look outside of work, Greg, you are very familiar, and I'm sure some of your previous participants have spoken about the fact that COVID presented an opportunity to many people to open their eyes and do things which we might otherwise have not done if COVID had not hit us. And that was precisely the case for me as well. I was able to focus on things which I might otherwise have not focused on, even though the interest was there. So let me just pick one of them and talk a little bit about that. Almost 32 years after completing my graduation, I developed an interest to go back to academia. And as I said in my introduction to this podcast, I'm deeply interested in the relationship between humans 
and the human behavior on the one hand and digital technologies on the other. And it was actually through a podcast, through another podcast, that I'd heard the word digital anthropology. I'd heard digital, of course, I'd heard anthropology. I'd never heard the two of them being used in conjunction. And I was on a holiday in January 2020 in Australia, walking by the Yara River in an early morning walk. I was listening to a podcast and I heard a gentleman introduce himself as a digital anthropologist. And one thing led to the other. And, you know, two months later, the world was working from home because of COVID. And that's when I said, look, here, here's an opportunity for me to do something meaningful because otherwise I used to travel 20 days a month globally. And I said, let me get back to academia, which has always been of interest. So I've acquired a master's in digital anthropology. And I think outside of work, it's just allowed me, I think, to ask questions to myself and hopefully bring a new dimension to a dialogue with clients as we look at this element of what human behavior is like as technology moves faster and faster. So that is what digital anthropology is. It's an emerging social science, and I dare say it's going to see a lot of change in the coming years. Anthropology itself as a social science is relatively new. You know, whether it's sociologists, whether it's anthropologists, increasingly these kind of social scientists are having a role to play and they're complementing the technologists in many organizations. So that's something that I've completed in the last three years and I'm now a digital anthropologist. I do a lot of reading around that. And that actually led me to something that I'm presently pursuing, a two-year program at the University of Cambridge. It's the first of its kind globally. So Cambridge University was the first one of its kind to launch such a program. I think some of the other leading universities in the UK and the US are now launching a similar program which is around the ethics of artificial intelligence. So as we know, unlike the medical profession, Greg, where, you know, someone who signs up to a doctor also swears by the ethics of the medical profession. So medical ethics and the progress in medicine itself will sort of go hand in hand. Unfortunately, in technology, we are not there. You know, technology is moving very, very rapidly. But the ethics around some of these new and powerful technologies has not necessarily received the kind of attention that it probably needs to receive. So I think the fact that today there is more acknowledgement that one needs to pay equal attention to the ethics of some of these new powerful technologies, I think it's a revelation. And I'm right now, like I said, training to be an AI ethicist. I complete that course in June of next year. So between the digital anthropology and AI ethics, that's the other non-work related dimension to my profile, if you like, around academia. I half jokingly say this to both friends and family, which is that 30, 35 years ago when I should have been really studying hard, I never did that. And here towards the back end of my working career at the end of, I've been in the industry now for 32 years and suddenly I've got back to academia with a kind of seriousness that was probably lacking when I was in school and college. (laughs) But I really hope that these two courses and the dimensions that it has hopefully created for me and the amount of reading that I've done in these two emerging but very, very relevant areas Hopefully, it will make me a more interesting individual. And if I can bring all of that to my workplace as well and make a difference to my colleagues, to my customers, and to the people I engage with, I think there'll be nothing better than that. I think we could have a whole podcast on the ethics around AI because yeah, it's yeah. right. It's such an important topic. And it's I won't say it's new, but I think as a discipline, as a thought process, I think it's relatively new. Yeah, absolutely. So one last question. As someone who is a senior leader, I always like to ask this question, and it's kind of interesting because you mentioned some of those things that you were just talking about, how they're kind of new in the academic world. Similarly, in payments and fintech, no one really went to school to be in fintech. 
But now, at least in the U.S., there are a couple of universities that offer fintech courses. So you can get an idea in college about what is the fintech industry? What is financial technology all about? So the question is, what advice would you give someone? Say they're coming out of college, they're looking for a job, they get hired by you guys or any fintech company. What would you tell them that they need to do to be successful, to have a successful career in the fintech or financial technology space? That's a very, very broad question. And one could possibly talk for a very long time on that. But I think for someone who wants to get into the space, I think first and foremost, one has to acknowledge that we are probably in the most exciting times as far as this technology is concerned, but also probably in some ways the most difficult times. And I say difficult not because of some of the macroeconomic environment metrics that are in front of us around inflation and recession and so on. I mean, in terms of the changing landscape, whether it's more competition coming in from non-banking players, whether it's the kind of regulation that's expected of players in the space. So I think there's excitement on the one hand, but certainly there's a lot of challenges that come with that. And I think by recognizing and acknowledging these two facets, if you like, if someone is really coming into the payment space with their eyes open, then it's probably one of the most exciting spaces to be in. And I say that not because it's Nice to say, but Greg, all of your listeners will be very familiar with what's indeed been happening in the space. And if you just look at what's already happened, you know, whether it's open banking and open banking, of course, has had different avatars in different parts of the world, whether it's the fact that real-time payments is now opening up, cross-border payments are getting increasingly relevant. So everyone says the world is globalized, and yet there is an element where institutions want to be more localized. So I think cross-border payments sort of straddle both. The fact that technology has allowed new propositions to be made available, you know, whether it's buy now, pay later, which has gained a lot of prominence through COVID, uh, whether it's the emergence of digital wallets, and certainly in more recent times, embedded payments, and now more and more countries talking about central bank digital currencies. And maybe some of this, you know, will be backed by that one technology, which everyone hopes is going to make a big difference, but somehow it doesn't seem to be done at scale, which is uh, blockchain. It's held out a lot of hope, but I think if you were all to be very honest about it, the truth is that it's still not lived up to the kind of hype and expectation that went with the technology a few years ago. So I think these are very, very interesting and exciting times. And someone coming into this business needs to, I think, understand both, understand the opportunities and be excited by that, but also do a reality check about what it needs to be successful in this space. I think the other element, and this is probably not just true for people coming into the payment space, but indeed anyone doing anything with technology is something that I said, I think, in response to one of your earlier questions in this podcast, Greg, which is that the big change post-COVID is managing the changing expectations, whether it's the expectations around the need to exhibit speed to market in new payment rail adoptions, whether it's the expectations around the willingness to show readiness to for open payment directives, whether it's the appetite for innovation within the ecosystem that you operate in. And we've not actually talked about the ecosystem in this podcast, but that I think is another hugely important element in the way business is evolving. I'd just point to the fact that while there's excitement on the one hand, certainly stakeholders are expecting managements of all businesses, whether you're a small startup, whether you're a local or regional player, or indeed a global bank, the ability to manage risk and cost to compliance. These are no longer areas where any mistake is forgiven easily. 
So I think while it's great to be excited by the business opportunities in front of us, and certainly there are many, many business opportunities which are usually exciting, I think there is a huge, huge expectation that we as individuals and as organizations will show the responsiveness, but also the responsibility to ensure that we manage risk effectively and that we run our business and demonstrate the cost to compliance, which the business needs to show. So I think if someone comes in with Wearing a hat that sort of has all of these different feathers, I think it would be the right starting point. All I would say is that technology has driven a situation where there's no dearth of opportunities. In my 30 odd years in the industry, I can't think of a single situation in the past when there were as many opportunities as there are presently. And of course, all of them are underpinned by the power of technology. So I think it's a hugely exciting time to be here. And if someone is serious about this, then demonstrate conviction and make a plunge into the business. Great. Yeah, I think that's some great advice. Well, Senate, we've covered a lot of ground about you, your background, the company, the industry. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Not specifically about payments or the industry itself, Greg. I just want to thank you. You know, as I mentioned at more than one occasion on this podcast, I am a personally a big believer in podcasts. You know, when I exercise, when I go for a walk, even when I'm doing household chores. I always have my AirPods on and I'm actually now listening to more podcasts than I listen to music. I believe podcasts are a big revelation and I know many people are now discovering the excitement and the enrichment that podcasts offer. So I think all credit to people like you and many of your other compatriots who have different podcasts on different topics. I think it's exciting to listen to the perspective that many of your participants come and talk about. It's so enriching and it's so exciting. Whether you learn about their successes, sometimes they talk about their failures and their difficulties. All of that is very exciting. So, you know, hats off to people like you who run these podcasts and, you know, made the stride grow. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been great to learn about you and the business. And I know your time is very valuable, so I want to be sensitive to that. But I really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you very much, Greg. Thank you for the opportunity and all the best to you and your team at the podcast. Thank you so much. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for joining us this week on the Leaders in Payments podcast. Make sure you visit our website at leadersinpayments.com where you can subscribe to the show and where you'll find our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please share on your social channels as well.